The passage that we're about to read concludes with a warning. And it's a warning that Jerusalem will be destroyed because Jesus' hearers didn't know the time of their visitation. So in other words, they were going to be judged because of their rejection of the Messiah. So in the midst of all this excitement of the triumphal entry, Jesus takes the opportunity to emphasize that the important thing is to be following him. So with that perspective, listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you that you are our good and righteous King. And as our good and righteous King, you have supplied for all of our needs. And so we simply return to you what you have first given to us in these tithes, gifts, and these offerings. And our prayer is that you would use these gifts, that you would use them for the furthering of your kingdom, that your kingdom would be revealed in this place and throughout the world, and that the good news of your gospel would be proclaimed to every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And Father, as we ourselves pray that the gospel would go out into all the world, we pray this morning that the gospel would be proclaimed to us. We ask that Jesus, you would come And be our teacher this morning. That you would come and open your word to us. And that you would would write it upon our hearts. Father, we confess that we all walk through these doors in different places. Some of us with burning questions. Others of us skeptical. Others of us convinced. Some of us happy. Some of us discouraged. And feel beaten down. No matter where we come from. 
Father, we pray that you would be present this morning and that your Son himself would speak to us by his Spirit and reveal to us that despite our differing circumstances in life, we really are all the same. We are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so, because of that, we all need to hear the same good news. We need to hear this morning that it can be true that we can be, at the same time, both far more broken than we can imagine, but because of Jesus' person and His work, also far more loved, far more secure, far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. Help us this morning to see Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The children ages 3 to 6 are dismissed to Children's Church at this time, so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary. As we've mentioned a couple of times already this morning, um, this Sunday is a unique Sunday in the church calendar. Uh, The church has celebrated this Sunday uniquely for centuries upon centuries. It's called Palm Sunday. Um, Palm Sunday marks the entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as king. He entered the city claiming to be king, which is very clear in this passage, which we'll see. But just one week later, after his entrance into the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jesus the king was crucified on the cross. And next Sunday, when we gather together, we will celebrate his victory over the cross and over sin and death. And I hope you'll be back for that. But here's what I want to share with you from this passage that we read earlier in Luke chapter 19. It's a pretty simple thought that will be running through the course of this sermon. Um, it's just this, Luke 19 is telling us that Jesus is a new kind of king. Right? Whatever your thoughts are about Jesus at this moment, um, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is a very different kind of king. And if I could add to that thought, whether you're a Christian or not uh, at this moment, um, Jesus is the king you have been looking for, you have been longing for, you have been dreaming of all of your life. Because he is the one king under whose reign everyone becomes free and life flourishes. Right? He is the one king who promises to come and right every wrong in this broken world. He is the one king who promises to come and topple every injustice, to lift from the dust the oppressed and seat them with princes. He is the one king, the only king, who can satisfy yours and mine, our deepest longings in life. I realize all of that is is somewhat of a bold assertion just to throw that out there up front, that he's the king you've been looking for and dreaming of all your life. But I I do hope that you'll hear me out this morning. Um, If you've been coming to Grace Community Church, you may realize that um, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. At least I hope you realize that I've been gone. If you don't, don't tell me. But... um, but in the past couple of weeks, the officers um, of our church were very gracious to me in that they gave me a few, few days to get away 
just to study. And among other things, um, I was studying for upcoming sermons such as these. And during that time when I was away studying and reading and doing all those things, I, I could sense myself, I, I realized that I was getting excited and even a little bit antsy of wanting to be back with you. Um, it, it may seem strange to hear, but um, depending on how well I know you this morning, but, but I did realize that this is where my friends are, right? This is where the, pe- this is where the people I care about are in this church. And um, some of you are Christians, others of you are not. Some of you aren't really sure uh, what you are uh, or what you believe, but you're the people I care about and love. And I think that it's common to our experience, right, that when we find something good and when we, fi- or when we find something great, something beautiful, something exciting, we want to share it with our friends, right? We all do this. Um, we see a great movie, we discover a new band that we really like, or we read a great book, or, or, or take a great trip. We get, we get excited just about telling our friends about that. It's natural. Um, I'm, I'm a little concerned that it's, kind of, it's sneaking up on me. Next year will mark the 20th year that I've been doing full-time ministry. Um, I don't know how that happened, uh, that I've gotten that old. But, um, you know, I, I realize I'm a very slow learner. Uh, in life. I always have been. Uh, but I think in that, those 20 years, I've learned maybe a few things. Um, and one of the things I've learned is that it's good news that changes and transforms people. Um, see, because I've been doing this 20 years, that's given me a lot of time to try some different things. Um, and I have tried shoveling massive amounts of information at people before. And massive amounts of information doesn't transform people's lives, right? I've tried to argue, and I've even won some arguments and some debates, but arguing doesn't really transform people, right? I've tried, at times, getting loud and amping up the volume, and that doesn't really work either. What truly and deeply changes people is good news. What will truly and deeply change you is good news. And this is incredible good news this morning. That Jesus is a new kind of king. That he is the king you have been looking for, longing for, and dreaming of all your life. So here's my very first simple point. The first simple point. We need a king. You have to bear with me a second because we sort of need to get a running start into this passage. And this is where we need to start. We need a king. Right? The whole of our lives speaks to this. Right? We need something to live for, don't we? Right? We feel it deep within us. Right? That we need and we want something that will captivate our imagination. Something that will thrill us. Right? Something large enough, something grand enough, something beautiful enough to pull us into its orbit. Right? And give our lives meaning and hope and direction. We go to movies. We listen to music. We read books. And we search for causes that will inspire us and shape our lives. Many of us, I understand, have grown skeptical and we've grown cynical. But even the angst, even the frustration, even the bitterness that lies beneath our cynicism, it speaks to this all the more. 
I hope you realize this about the human condition. It is etched into our DNA. We need a king. G.K. Chesterton, the theologian and writer, he insightfully said that when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, but worships everything. Right? Worship being in awe of something, finding something beautiful and grand enough to, to really center our lives upon. It is so at the core of our humanity that we can do nothing to shake its impulse. The novelist uh, David Foster Wallace He gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio just a couple of years before his suicide in 2008. And here's how he put it in his speech. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Being a preacher is, is a weird profession, all right? We're a weird, quirky bunch. I get it. We all get it. It's out there in the air. We, you know, it's okay. Um, our jobs are strange. They're hard to understand. And one really weird part of being a preacher is that you pay me to tell me really bad news about yourself, <laughs> um, really hard things about yourself. Um, you think about how odd and weird and strange that is sometimes, meditate on that. But here's the bad news I'm giving you up front this morning. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so does your heart, right? We need a king, right? The only question left to us is who or what we will crown as king in our lives, Who or what we will bring into the very center of our lives to shape and define us, what we will see as ultimate beauty in this life. Let me read you just a few more lines of Wallace's uh, speech, David Foster Wallace. Here's where he's offering some, uh, what he calls a compelling reason to worship some God, as he puts it. Pretty much anything else, he says, you worship will eat you alive. And he goes on. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Listen, we need a king. But the hard truth for us is that is the kings we are so often crowning in our lives. Whether they come in the form of money or power or sex or intellect or relationships or social status or comfort or security or success or whatever, every one of these kings will eat us alive, and they will force us to die a million deaths in service just to get them. The things we've crowned in life, don't you realize? They are strangling the life out of us, right? Oppressing us and turning us cold and bitter and hard. Now, right about now, you're probably wondering, where's all this good news that you were talking about in the beginning? We're about to turn that corner, but listen to me. The good news It glimmers and shines in all its beauty and all its brilliance against the backdrop of this bad news. 
See, you go to the jeweler and you go to buy your wife a diamond. And the jeweler is always going to take out that diamond and place it on a piece of black velvet. Because it's against that background that it glimmers and shines in all its beauty and all its brilliance. So let's start turning the corner a bit in the second point. So we need a king in the first point. But second, what we need is the true king. Not just any king will do. We need the true king. There's really no way to soft-pedal this. This story in Luke puts front and center Jesus' claim to be the king and the true king. I know how easy it is, uh, and maybe especially in the South, to give lip service to Christianity. You know, Jesus this and Jesus that, and all the while Jesus is actually on the very edges and the very periphery of our lives. To like Jesus but not really have him at the very center of our lives, to give him lip service, right? But not actually take our hands off of our lives and give up control to his kingship. There's no way to soft-pedal this because Jesus, in this passage and in this story, he means to force our hand, right, with this claim to be the true king, like the quote on the front of your bulletin suggests. There is no middle ground, When it comes to Jesus, he is forcing the question, yes or no, crown him or kill him. But there is not a third way. There is not a third option. He won't leave open the option for you to just like him, but not have him at the center of your life. He claims to be the one true king that we need. I'm going to take these verses a bit out of order, but Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem. And so were thousands of others for that matter. It was the Passover feast. And for centuries, the Jews were making pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, right? This annual feast. And in the midst of that crowd, Jesus was on this previously unridden cult, which we'll come back to in a moment. But listen, it was all very symbolic, and prophetic, right? It, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. See, by riding this donkey into Jerusalem, he was claiming to be the true king that Zechariah prophesied. Prophesied, And on this pilgrimage, the Jewish people, they would, they would regularly sing the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 113 through 118. And Psalm 118, verse 26, goes like this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But I want you to notice that the crowd understood the symbolism. They got the image of Jesus riding on this colt. They weren't singing in verse 38, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were singing... Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees understood it too. Right? He was forcing their hand too. Yes or no, crown him or kill him. And in verse 39, the Pharisees were rejecting him. Right? Seeking to silence Jesus' claim. Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But then we get this fascinating line from Jesus in verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus was saying, I am the one true king. And even if all these people are quiet and silent, all of creation would erupt and burst forth in my praise. 
Some of you are, are probably tired of me quoting this, but unfortunately for you, I'm not tired of it. Um, G.K. Chesterton, again, uh, quoted him the last point. He wrote this, Fairyland is nothing but the sunny country of common sense. It is not earth that judges heaven, but heaven that judges earth. So for me at least, it was not earth that criticized Elfland, but Elfland that criticized the earth. I knew the magic beanstalk before I had tasted beans. I was sure of the man in the moon before I was certain of the moon. Old nurses do not tell children about the grass, but about the fairies that dance on the grass. And old Greeks could not see the trees for all the dryads. About the need to worship, David Foster Wallace also said this. On one level, he said, we already know this. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton, he says, of every great story. About the, need to, about the need to worship, he is saying, it's all around us. All of creation has been speaking of this, right? Try to silence Jesus' claim, but you can't because every great story, every great fairy tale that lasts, it has the, it has the echoes. It's full of the echoes of the true king that you've been looking for all your life. Right? That poor cinder girls, when loved by the true prince, they can become Cinderella's. Right, That beauty must, she has to love the unlovable beast before he can ever become lovable and be transformed. Right, Sleeping beauty's death, it can really be softened to a sleep from which she awakes, but only when she is kissed by the true king. You cannot silence the claims of Jesus to be the true king. It echoes in everything in all of creation. Silence, the, silence these people, Jesus is saying, and the stones will cry out. He is the one who sang the universe into being. He breathed into being every star, every mountain, every river. The very stones know the true king, and they long to praise them. And the question that Jesus is forcing upon us this morning is, do you know him? That he is a new kind of king come into his creation. There is no middle ground. Crown him or kill him. Praise him or not, but his rightful claim to the true kingship will never be silenced. Okay, third, I want us to see from this passage that we need the gentle king. So our lives, I'm telling you, testify to the fact that we need a king, but, not, but all the many kings that we are so busy crowning in our lives, they're harsh and they're cruel taskmasters. They demand a million deaths in their service. In this passage... In this, in this story that Luke is telling, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt. And God wants you to know that the true king is a gentle king. He's a new kind of king. I'm convinced that some of us are so familiar with this story that this image of Jesus on a colt doesn't shock us like it's meant to shock us. Yes, it's fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, but you have to admit that it's at least a very strange prophecy, right? That he will come, the king will come riding in on a colt. Because kings don't normally arrive like this. They arrive on big, powerful animals, war horses. They come with a show of their strength and their authority, bringing behind them the spoils of their victorious power with them. In our world, right, they come in 
motorcades of black limousines escorted by flashing blue police lights, right? See, kings and presidents, they don't travel in little, (coughs) no offense to you if you drive one of these, but they don't travel in eco-friendly Toyota Priuses, right? They, They come with a show of power and strength. See, this image is supposed to make us think, what? What, why, why is he on a cult? He's a new kind of king. He's a gentle king. See, none of this in this story was accidental. That's what these verses are teaching us. The scholar William Lane, he points out that all of these detailed instructions that are given, that Jesus gives his disciples in verses 31 to 32, they point to the fact that Jesus has already made these arrangements for this cult uh, with the owner. Look, verse 1 told us that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. But you actually have to travel back ten whole chapters to see when this journey to Jerusalem began in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And a lot has transpired since Luke chapter 9, a lot of time has elapsed, but none of it was accidental. It was planned and timed perfectly that Jesus would be here at the beginning of Passover, riding on this colt, making his way into the city of Jerusalem. The image of the true king on a colt was deliberate because you remember what, Isaiah, what Zechariah said, your king is coming, humble or gentle, mounted on a donkey. He's the gentle king. Admittedly, I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up on the farm. Um, I don't know much about farm animals like horses and donkeys. But, but I, ha- I have at least watched enough cowboy movies to pick up on a few things, right? And I think I get this, that horsey, horse, horses, horses, horses and donkeys, um, for the children, I'm speaking to the children, um, they... Uh, when they haven't been ridden before, <laughs> at least the first time, they don't like it, right? The first time someone sits on them, they want to buck that someone off. And I also don't think, that, I don't think they normally like people screaming and shouting and throwing things in front of them, right? But all of that's happening in this passage. I mean, all those things tend to spook an unridden colt or donkey. They have to be broken, right? They have to learn to submit to the bit and to the bridle and to the reins, right? But not this colt, right? Not this colt, because the true king, the gentle king is upon him. And under his hand, this unridden colt becomes what it was meant to be. Under his gentle hand, it becomes what it was meant to be. All those kings that we crown in life that oppress us and crush us and enslave us and force us to die a million deaths. But Jesus, he's a new kind of king, Luke is telling us. He's the gentle king. And under his gentle hand, only under his gentle hand, will you and I become free and find out who and what we were made to be in Jesus. It's a terrifying thought. It really is to give up control of our lives and take our hands off of our lives and submit to the king. And maybe, just maybe, this is why Jesus told his oppressed, crushed, and burdened followers this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I 
will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't just need a king. We need the true king. We need the gentle king. But last, I want you to see in this passage, and we'll look at this very briefly as we close. Last, we need to see that we need the crying king. You see this in verse 41. The cheers of the crowd gave way to the tears of the king. Right? He is a new kind of king. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, it ended on a road that led from Bethany through Bethphage and up to, up to Jerusalem um, itself. But the actual road, it descended into this hollow, right? Uh, because of this interesting ridge that, that's there in that area. And as it came into the hollow... They'd be walking on this road, and then they would begin to ascend this hill. And as they crested the top of that hill, the city would burst into view. And when the city of Jerusalem burst into view, Luke says, Jesus burst into tears. Why? Why did he weep when he saw Jerusalem? It's far too much for us to go into any great detail here. But Jesus, in these last verses in our passage, he prophetically saw Jerusalem's future. Prophetically, he saw a time that was coming when the Romans would come in and they would crush the city of Jerusalem, that they would scorch it in violence, and its streets would be filled with blood. And listen to this the brokenness of this world broke his heart. As one author wrote, he came loving our fragmented world and he wept over it. I hope I don't need to tell you this, but this is the king we need. The crying king. A king who weeps and a king who bursts into tears at our tears, at our brokenness, at our sorrow. He's a new kind of king who weeps over our tattered and torn world and our tattered and torn lives. He came to a world fragmented and broken because it was a world that had rejected him as king. But you have to see it in his tears. He didn't come to scorch this world with fire and justice. He came with tears and he came to be cut down by the fiery sword of justice. The kings you crown in this life, they will never weep over you. They will never die for you. They will always demand a million deaths from you. But this is a new kind of king. He's a king who came to die for you. Jesus had deliberately chosen to come into the city of Jerusalem during Passover week. Right? The Jewish people had celebrated the Passover meal for centuries, right? And it was this simple meal, bread, wine, bitter herbs, and the centerpiece of the meal was this lamb, right? The Passover lamb. And it was a feast they celebrated every year because they were reminding themselves of that time when they were enslaved, when they were oppressed, and they were crushed as a people under Egyptian rule. And there, maybe you remember that story, right? The lamb was the centerpiece of this meal because the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the, the Israelites, they had taken the blood and they had painted it on the door frames of their houses. And when God passed through Egypt in his judgment, he passed over all the houses with the blood of lambs on their doorposts. 
And here's, here's what's interesting in the Gospels. All the Gospels describe Jesus eating this meal with his friends, his disciples, his followers. We call it the Last Supper, right? And all the Gospel writers mention the bread that was on the table. All the Gospel writers mention the wine that was on the table. But not a single one of them mentions the main course. Not a single one of them says anything about a lamb being on the table. It's because they're all driving this point home. That the true lamb who could take away the sin of the world, he was not on the table, but at the table. This new kind of king wasn't a lamb, but he was the lamb who came to save the world, and he came to save it through judgment. He came to die for us, his people. You know, it's a really scary prospect. Um, to, and I'm not saying that frivolously. It's scary to take your hands off of your life and submit. And I think, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> right? Because we've been eaten alive by all kinds of kings we've crowned and submitted to. We've been forced to die a million deaths in service to them. But Jesus is a new kind of king, right? He came crying. He came weeping his way to the cross to die for you in order to set you free. Three brief things to mention as we close here. First, we will only become who and what we were meant to be under the kingly, gentle hand of Jesus. We hear a lot today about the need to find ourselves, right? It's, it's everywhere around us, and I can't get into it a whole lot here, but the good news of the gospel is that when you lose yourself, right, when you take your hands off of your life and put your life into Jesus' hands, you will then find out who and what you were meant to be. And second, like the disciples in verse 37, we, when we see Jesus like this, we need to rejoice and praise Him. We are already necessarily centering our lives on something. Don't pretend you can like Jesus, but not have Him at the very center of your life. He came to force our hand. The cross forces our hand. Crown Him or kill Him. And only when you crown Him will you find the something, the someone you've been looking for all your life. And last, third, I want to say this. Depending on where you were when we started this morning, you might still be thinking this morning, I am not really sure what I think about Jesus or the gospel. But it's also completely understandable that in reading this passage that you would think, I'm not sure I believe it, but I really wish it were true. And that is often the first step to believing the good news of the gospel, to wish that it were true. To hope that it would be true. Because it, this is, it is echoing through all of creation. There is a king you and I have been looking for all our lives. Longing for and dreaming for. A new kind of king. Right? The true king. The gentle king. The crying king. Come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And he will give you rest. And I do hope that you'll come back next week to hear more good news. Because he is also the triumphant king. He is the king who rose from the dead, having conquered all his and our enemies in order to set us free in him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you have given us together this morning.
We thank you for meeting with us, your people. We pray that you would take this word and that you would write it upon our hearts. That you would allow us the time to be honest with ourselves. To realize that we need a king. We are all worshiping something. And Father, we pray that we would see that in Jesus we find the true king that we desperately need. The king we have been longing for all our lives. That in Jesus we find the one king who will be gentle with us. The one king who can come and destroy what plagues us without destroying us. Who can die in our place and have victory over sin without killing us. Father, we pray that we would find in Jesus the crying king. That we would rejoice even as we see him as the king who came weeping over his broken creation. Father, set our hearts free as we submit to the reign and to the rule of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.